0: everybody, welcome to another episode of Leeson Learned. Thank you so much for being here. I am very, very excited about today's guest. This gentleman was one of the UK's top stand-up comedians. He was the comedy editor for GQ magazine. A few years ago, he decided to leave that life and move to New Brunswick, Canada, of all places. And if you're thinking, why the fuck would anyone do that? Great question, and I think it might be the first one I ask him in a moment. He has been on CBC, he's toured across the country, he's toured across multiple countries, and he also sold out an arena. What? A fucking arena! This guy sold out an arena twice now, in St. John, New Brunswick, and he beat Jerry Seinfeld's attendance record in the process. I cannot believe it! I, I discovered this guy a few years ago, not I discovered him, but I became aware of him a few years ago and was like, who the fuck is this British guy? that is selling out arenas in New Brunswick. Well, he's not, he sold out one, but he did it twice. He's got comedy specials, he's got a YouTube channel. They even made a movie about his life. That's how fucking fascinating he is. And I know you're gonna love him. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. James Mullinger. Thank you so much for being here. I really
1: appreciate this. Not at all. It's an honor. It's an honor to be on the Jeff Leeson show. This is, this is, this is, where else would I want to be on a Friday? This is it. Well, I, I
0: appreciate that. And uh, I, I, I became aware of you a couple years ago. I heard about this British guy that sold out an arena in New Brunswick, which I first thought was a joke. I, I literally thought it was like The Onion or, you know, one of those like fake news uh, newspapers <laughs> yeah. or something. I was like, there's no way somebody is selling out an arena in New Brunswick that I've never heard of and you know (laughs) then kind of looked into you realized holy shit this guy really did that and uh and then kind of learned a little bit more about you and became an instant fan so this this is a really big deal for me honestly
1: well well, that's that's very kind i of course i of course know of you extremely well and it's nice to finally connect i hear we have many mutual friends i hear wonderful things about you from so many people so it's this is lovely well that's great one of those wonderful benefits of the of the the world we're living in now is uh, things like this can happen, and we can make connections that we maybe wouldn't have done if it wasn't for a global pandemic. So yay, COVID! <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's always a silver lining to everything. It seems that, that's right. Yeah, we have to find
0: it anyway. Yeah. So uh, you are, of course, from London, London, England. Yeah. Uh, and I am from the uh, the Canadian version, London, Ontario, the one L- that ripped L- you guys off
1: <laughs> nice.
0: Uh, and and then you moved. you moved from London, England to mm. St. John, New Brunswick, and yeah. to steal a line from one of your comedy specials. Why the fuck did you do that?
1: <laughs> Good question. Um uh, the short answer is quality of life. Um my wife grew up here and and we definitely we'd spent many years together uh, living in London. Um obviously had you know London a great place to visit, uh, a great place to to grow up, a great place to be in your 20s, but uh we started having kids in our 30s and really it was just reaching that kind of point in our lives and careers where we said you know we are living in the most expensive city in the world one of the most crime-ridden cities um uh, we're not doing any of the london things and yet we're paying all this money to be here and we kind of figured that we were at a stage in our lives that we could in theory do the jobs that we do anywhere um Obviously, uh, New Brunswick not known for being a hub of of media or entertainment um, or any of those things. But um, so adamant were we that we wanted to give our children this kind of rural community driven uh, upbringing that I was fully uh, prepared to give up any type of creative role in my life in order to live here like that's kind of how much so so coming here in 2014 so or, or almost seven years ago now um was a decision based on what's the. It was basically the first time in my life that I kind of put like ego and career and ambition aside and said, "What's the? What is the right thing for for my kids?" Uh, and 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 that's a very rare thing for me to do—to put anything ahead, anything at all, ahead <laughs> of you know comedy career or anything else. And right. um. So yeah, so any everything that's kind of happened since then, and and the fact that I'm still able to, I mean, even now with what's going on in the world, make any form of living at this, it has it's all been a surprise. So when you moved to New Brunswick, you
0: you had obviously been doing stand up and and entertainment in uh, in England, in London,
1: right? So I had um I I had both a day job working uh for GQ magazine, where I was the the comedy editor. And and yes, performed stand up nightly. So it was kind of a, a ridiculously um, frenetic schedule, which was again part of the reason why we had no quality of life. We're essentially I'm working all day and every night, and still had no money left in, to pay for childcare. You know? Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, and so when you when you moved to
0: New Brunswick and mm-hmm. and and made that f- like full move there, um, were you? fully expecting uh that the comedy career is over or did you think it's it's just like I'm starting over fresh or were you expecting a completely different career
1: G- good good question i guess i was pr- i was somewhat hopeful that, that that i would be able to make something of a stab of it and 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 possibly uh it was kind of dumb arrogance or or you know uh dumb hopefulness that i kind of thought I mean, I mean now, uh, often in keynote speeches and stuff, I talk about this whole kind of idea of like how absurd it is actually that people would say to me, um, uh, you know, people would, uh, after saying why did you move here, the second thing they would say is, you know, what you do for a living. And when I said comedian, they'd be like, oh, you can't, can't do that here. There's no comedy industry here. We don't, we don't have uh, comedy clubs in New Brunswick. And and I kind of, and now with the benefit of hindsight, I'm able to kind of point out the the lunacy of that because you wouldn't say to a plumber don't go to a particular town there's no plumbers there if there's no plumbers (laughs) there's a lot of shitty toilets that need unblocking so i see myself as the toilet unblocker of comedy um and and, i hope that's on your website (laughs) yeah it should be it should be um but what's but i guess with hindsight it's easy for me to for for me to say that um but at the time there was definitely an element that i kind of thought maybe i can because i've always had this kind of diy approach uh to things like like because in the uk uh any profile i had which was minimal but any profile i had was all self generated i was never one of these people who was the the darling of the industry who who got you know signed up by an agent who i mean the industry was essentially telling me that they you know i didn't have any of those things i didn't get booked for the for the panel shows in the uk i didn't have the 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 trendy agent um, I forged out creating an audience for myself by, you know, grafting by booking tours myself, ch- deciding that I wanted to go on solo tours and building an audience this organic way. Uh, and it, of course, in England, being such a tiny island, it, easier to do because all you have to do, you know, I would get on trains and literally go to a town, walk into a theatre, negotiate the 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 rental with them, get posters printed, go back to the town introduce myself at, at, lo- at little shops and businesses and sell bulk tickets to to, to a company, uh, go to a post office and, and speak to the manager and, and ask them to put the poster up and tell them uh, to, to, to spread the word. So it was always kind of self. So essentially my whole comedy life was always like a fringe. I treated it, 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 12 months of the year like a fringe. So I kind of knew that I had that approach and that maybe that approach could work here and that's basically what i did when i got here was said took every single gig i possibly could so you know c- came here and and if there was an opportunity to perform in a school a church uh, in a vin in a field in a vineyard just said yes to everything and treated it the same way that a contractor would would treat their business which is and this is the wonderful thing about a, a small place of course is that word spreads quickly if you I mean, if you're good or bad at something, and that's the weird thing. in you know, so if you, I was very much aware that if I did had it did had a bad gig, everyone would hear about it. But conversely, you have a good one, people, the word spreads very quickly. So it was a very grassroots organic approach of do a show. People hear about it, yeah. as opposed to the traditional system of, you know, you get signed by an agent who then negotiates with a, a late night, you know, uh, booker that, you know, they get to have their you can have my big name client uh, as a guest if you put on my my new up and coming act for for a stand-up set all of those kind of backhanded you know backhanded deals that go on in bigger uh, industry hubs n- none of that's the case here and and i think it's one of those things where you know had i been the kind of comic that maybe wants to kind of uh, wait for the agent to book the shows for them obviously i wouldn't that wouldn't have worked here um all of that said i mean the first thing i did my first day here uh I, before i when, when we moved here i did spend a week in toronto you know like auditioning for for yuck yucks and all of those things and and that was what i had in my head was going to be the the way in was being able to you know work for yucks and do that across the country now that di- that was and is uh certainly part of my uh revenue in normal times but but i didn't expect it to be like the the, the tiniest tiniest part of it
0: that's a that's really amazing uh, first of all of you to do that and I, I think that's um probably maybe a little bit more common now out of uh necessity for a lot of comedians but for years and years i, I think the the majority of um can uh comedian mindsets was wait until you get the comedy festival uh do the open mic you know do the open mics as much as you can wait for someone like yuck yucks to sign you wait for an agent to sign you almost wait for somebody to discover you and and now we're seeing that the uh, the industry is the complete opposite of that at this point
1: the, the, that's beautifully put, and you're absolutely right. And funny enough, it was it was actually Catherine Ryan who who told me this a few days in. I remember texting her because I'd basically walk. I, I obviously knew that famous story about how she walked out of working at Hooters one night and went to Toronto Yachts and did her first open spot. And I was there uh, auditioning that for 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 Mark Breslin in my first week. And I sent her a picture, and she, uh, you know, like I'm I'm here. I'm I'm doing this thing at the at the club where you started and um and and she replied kind of saying you know that's great but but you know just remember that the that the independent scene in Canada is is huge and this is the amazing thing that this country uh, well the amazing thing that has been created by Canadian comedians uh, is that a because there are no riches at the end of the rainbow for us here because there is no, you know, <laughs> you know because it, that, that's been eliminated. Like everyone knows that when you get into comedy in Canada, unless you are moving to England or America, you're not gonna become a millionaire. So what I love about it is that it means that the passion and the, the craft and the artistry behind Canadian comedians is so pure because everyone doing comedy in Canada Really loves stand up. Really loves the craft. Is really passionate about it, and that's why Canadian comedy is the best in the world. Because there's no fucking money at the end of it, right? Like, <laughs> like so, so there's no one doing it for ru- for for ruthless reasons, uh, right. and, and it, all of those kind of you know people. And again, that's not to, that's not to disparage all uh, American you know uh, performers or indeed British ones, but but because there is those spoils at the end, it becomes a very ruthless thing in those other countries, whereas in Canada the one thing and it's what I love about you know you I basically know if I'm in a dressing room in a comedy club in Canada the 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 one thing I will have in common with all of the other performers on the bill that night is is a is a passion for for stand-up and uh, whereas that isn't necessarily the case in in other countries
0: yeah absolutely I, I would say that's uh that's very accurate and definitely Definitely the case in in somewhere like Toronto because you see these guys that that were back when it was allowed, uh, w- where they were out you know yeah. night after night, no money, no pay. Um, sometimes yeah. four or five shows yeah, so. a night, just just to get stage time, just to get better, and just for the passion of it. So yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that, and I I think um, there's I think there's a lot of comedians that sort of settle in canada at least kind of settle for just being an amateur or just kind of having it be a hobby because they don't know the other side or they don't learn the business side or they're not willing to do like to put in that hustle that you're talking about the you know doing your own shows and certainly you know for a lot of people here the idea of even just renting a venue is so daunting because right. it costs money and how am i going to fill it and nobody knows who i am and um so yeah again i i think it's it's i think people can learn a lot from this from your uh hustle and and kind of that mindset and i think that's the people right now certainly that are making it in the industry
1: right and yeah it's it's um it's a very interesting i mean as you say like in if you want to 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 understanding and embracing the business side is is just is just so necessary here you know and uh i mean for my part i probably spend more time at a desk than i did when i had a desk job
0: right, <laughs> right. Know,
1: in in you know in, yeah. in, in in normal times you know i mean just but between admin and and, and paperwork and, and booking and then promoting the shows and again there's so many independent producers across the the country like i mean i was just um, swapping messages with uh, with robert trainwreck in in british columbia and i did shows with him last year and it, or, or year before last and then obviously last year's got postponed to this year and of course now they're going to be postponed again um but uh it, it's all of these kind of independent producers that are kind of you know making these waves in uh in entertainment and basically just trusting the audiences if they know that there's a performer coming to town they don't need for that performer to be some big tv name they don't need to they just need to trust that promoter that, that this person is going to make them make them laugh their asses off and and there's a there's a wonderful trust amongst audiences here for that reason but but yeah to your point i mean the um the business side of it is uh, is such a, a, a huge thing because, um, you know, uh, not a not everyone necessarily, you know, can get or indeed want want an agent. But also, I mean, you know, there's that's a lot of uh, handing over a huge percentage of of uh, of, you know, your, of your income to someone else is also right. a consideration, of course, as well.
0: Um what would you say the biggest difference is between doing stand-up in England and doing stand-up here in Canada?
1: Um definitely the audiences um in terms of the and and actually, Mark Breslin did s- sum this up b- beautifully when um I that that exact night, that first night that I was here when I when that was that first week when I was here as a, as a Canadian a resident, and, an audition, and I basically was was brought on stage and I I ran out and was like bang 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 like 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 kind of really fast and 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 kind of and afterwards he was like he was like I know why you do that and he said it's because in England. The, the audiences—it's—it's uh, it's like a baying mob. Like, uh, I mean, I guess. And to, to summarize, uh, I, yeah, and I'll, I'll summarize it with, the difference is in Canada. As weird as it sounds, comedy audiences come out to laugh. Uh, in Brit, in Britain, it often feels like the audience is coming out just to ruin the comedian's night. Now, <laughs> now, now of course, this is—you know—I'm not. And I can't generalize with all, but there was a lot of clubs and a lot of club chains. Where you would literally feel that anger, like you really, and of course that makes it a great place to to learn and a great place to kind of you know, because you're walking out on stage not to a, a, a friendly audience going, oh that's great, there's a comedian, let's have some fun. It's it's people sitting there going, let's see if this bastard can make me laugh. <laughs> like, like that's the the attitude they have. So. Uh, the, the, the point the president had made to me was he was like, he was like, you don't need to rush here. He's like, get out there. Take your time. Like, like you, 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 they are not against you. They are not your enemy. You can you can ease into it. It doesn't. Whereas in England, there is this feeling of like, if I don't get three massive laughs in the first 25 seconds, they're going to boo me off. Now, of course, that is a, a an amazing discipline. And it's and it, of course, it's why so many comedians when they move to, to the UK kind of improve so quickly um because of that but how for me i mean what a joy to kind of have to and again i mean a horrible you know many many years of 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 deaths and being booed off and 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 learning but to come here and for it to not feel like a like a, a battle when you walk out on stage is is just a a joy and i and i love that and again i mean that's that's a canadian you know of course the stereotype of friendly canadians is a true and and that is what translates into the audiences that the that they aren't they are there (laughs) again it just sounds weird to say it but yeah they've gone to a comedy show because they actually do want to laugh that's the biggest difference
0: Do you notice a difference even just in Canada? Do you notice a difference between the the major big cities and small towns
1: uh and the difference in those crowds? good, good question. Um not so much. I mean, I guess uh, the be, I mean n- not massively. Um I I find and I'm just I'm thinking back to like when we yeah, when I played uh, toronto yucks i mean one of the one of one of the most daunting things when 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 i come and do uh toronto yucks is of course you know the bells on a on a saturday night are so stacked that you know if i'm if i'm closing and before my 45 minute set they've got like six absolute killers like doing their tightest montreal seven minutes bang bang, bang. it is it, it's it's it, it's daunting and partly why i would often i would always enjoy coming to do toronto yucks was because it would really push me to be on my a game because i'd be sat at the back of the room watching you know four or five comedians absolutely destroy with the tightest like you know as i say montreal gala sets or their you know bang 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 back to back and it would really force me to to bring something so that so that's one of the differences i feel when i do clubs in bigger cities but in terms of the audiences i i, I don't necessarily feel that the um that there's i mean there's i mean arguably there's possible you can possibly uh be more politically incorrect in rural towns of course and right. be less you know i mean there was one there's one line that i had where just a throwaway comment but basically i would i would always offer the audience it's just one of those stupid tricks that we pull as comedians but I would basically offer the audience Do you want the clean ending or the dirty ending and of course I mean as if an audience is ever gonna uh, ask for the clean ending but yeah. invariably whenever I would say this I would say 50% of the time uh someone would shout out you know I like it dirty that was it was it was almost like a feed like I knew someone was going to shout this and and I used to do this whenever someone did this I would say hashtag me too and and it always got a laugh and then I did it one night at Toronto Yarks and it was this particular show was a very young audience of you know 20 somethings I say very young and I say say that because i guess that's I, sorry yeah very quickly in brackets one of the biggest differences is definitely uh, age demographic because in oh, yeah. the maritimes the average age of my audience i would say is 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 the average age would be 50s or 60s and that's average so there's some people bringing it down a bit but no one in their 20s comes to see uh, and it comes to comes to see my shows here um uh, whereas anyway, so, so I, so I said this, this line that, you know, someone shouts, I like it dirty. I said, hashtag me too. And, and the, a lot of people booed as if this, it was this kind of like millennial, uh, like that, how dare you undermine our movement. And it's, and, you know, right. I mean, it was that, that kind of mindset. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. Like this is a throwaway comment. It's kind of, I'm also not, it's not like I'm laying into the me too movement. I'm just sat, you know, it's, it's in, in some ways, just a kind of a play on words. Um, but but they took umbrage with it. And I just thought, well, that would never happen in a in a small town or in a in a rural place. But, uh, you know, that was one thing. But equally, I think it could also have been an age thing where, you know, as we know, the 20 somethings are very protective of, uh, of everything. Absolutely, And I I
0: agree with you. The age thing is huge. And I notice uh, I notice that in the smaller towns, it's typically an older age group that comes out to the shows. And in the bigger cities, there's often at comedy clubs, a younger age group. And I have found that the younger people are almost they almost come just waiting for them to hear something they can be offended by or pissed (laughs) off at or something they can come up to you after and be like, yeah, well, what the hell was that?
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. They they, they are kind of how they are, and again, I don't want to generalize and say all twenty somethings. But but basically, you see it on Twitter where where this kind of and it just seems it's such an interesting time because, of course, you know we're all we're we're all people who understand the uh, the the reasons why political, political correctness was was a good thing in terms of the fact that we we're trying to stamp out the 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 racism and homophobia and misogyny that our parents uh, espoused so 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 frequently at the the dinner table, and we're, and we're all on board with that. And we're very happy about that. But then it's funny how how essentially, what's happening now is it's a completely different thing of just like be mad about everything. Um, right and you know which um, is it's hard to understand.
0: <laughs> yeah, very difficult. Um, I want to take it back to when you first started in uh, in, in England. Can you give me a, a really solid hell gig or hell story or one of the <laughs> best sort of heckle slash boot off stage moments you've experienced there? I,
1: I, I certainly can. I mean, I've, obviously, there's there's m- m- many to choose from, but the one that really stands out. Um, and this actually does involve uh, a Canadian comedian uh, Sean Collins, actually. Um, oh, wow. OK. And and, and this is uh, actually this is quite funny because uh, right now it, it's a, a year ago today. Actually, I last saw Sean. We were both doing um, Ottawa Yuck Yucks this weekend a year ago, of course. I mean, it, such a weird thing to think that, you know. Uh, at that point you know however many 200 people packed into a tiny room uh yeah. you know none of us had even heard the word covid masks weren't a thing i mean it's just it weird how much then changed in the subsequent two months but um but yeah i mean one of the one, one of the i mean i had many many gigs where i obviously thought about giving up and it is a weird thing you know i'm, I'm sure you get this as well where you kind of look back at those early years and you're like and, and the other thing is, I mean, I remember a lot of people that started out at the same time as me who were significantly better, significantly funnier, um, but who just were were put off by the, the nightmare gigs and gave up. And I always kind of think, yeah. hey, what is it about people like us that, that forged through and, and for whatever reason... Um, you know, were able to cope with the the, the crushing disappointments <laughs> and, and the misery that that we thought I want to you kill know, I mean I guess it's a masochistic thing where we're like I want more of this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then also I mean I guess it's also that thing about you know the the ego of performers that like even though audiences were telling us that they they didn't want us to to by not laughing and booing us off the fact that we are we we crave attention so much that we are willing to go through that just for the rare night where it went well, um, and 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 it's just you know it's an it it fascinates me as a concept. But um, the one where I I cannot believe that I kept going was uh, I'd been maybe going for about three years and managed to secure uh, a. Uh, a 10-minute a open spot at the Comedy Store on a Saturday night, which was like the holy grail of open spots. I'd, I'd done a, a, a competition there. and, a, and Well, I'd been in, a, in the final of a competition there, which then had got me a Thursday night open spot. And, of course, I mean, the crazy thing with English open mic nights was once you decided you wanted to, to do stand-up and you would write to a comedy club to get on the waiting list to, to be to, to do a set, it was like 10 months away. Like it was so it would take literally I mean, the waiting list would just so anyway, uh, I would you would do well at the store on a Thursday and then you would wait six months and you would get to do a Friday. So I got this holy grail. It was like it was it was the early show uh a Saturday night. Now my then actually she was my wife at this point. We'd been married for maybe two years and she basically hadn't seen me for six months because I would work all day and then every night I would get on a train and travel to somewhere, somewhere across the UK. To do a show sleep on a train platform for the night come back i mean we literally i mean and, it, and it's a weird thing when you tell some your partner and your new wife that basically hey you know we don't <laughs> see much of each other right now well um, i'm gonna i'm gonna take up stand-up comedy so not only are we not going to see each other in the evenings anymore. We won't you won't see me at weekends either. And she goes, Oh well, at least we'll have a bit more money. No no no, no, we're gonna have a lot less money because <laughs> I'm not gonna be paid a cent for, 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 for at least five years. <laughs> so so any money we do have or anything that's left in the overdraft is gonna be spent by me taking a fifty pound train to the middle of nowhere to die on my ass and then and then spend my, oh, a, a, any any money's going on cabs, train fares uh, and then when you do see me uh, once a month, I'm going to be so depressed because I'm going to have been booed <laughs> off stage for the previous night. It's a weird thing to say to people. Do you take this man to be your <laughs> love? <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> wow. And then so I get this holy grail uh, of the of the satellite open spot, and so I say to her look you haven't seen me perform in about a year you've barely seen me in six months. I'm like come and see you can see where this is headed come oh, and no. see how how great oh, how great I've got how how much I've improved as a comic and 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 I, I you know what else I mean this night because if you do well on a Saturday night there's a chance you could get booked for the for the for the for the week for you know as a comedy store comedian so I also had it in my head that to get booked for a weekend it would be like 800 pounds so like 1600 dollars. so basically if i got if this went well i did get booked this was going to be my i'm giving up my day job moment so there was so much riding on this anyway wow. I, I, I i arrive <laughs> oh, at <boy>. the um <laughs> yeah. and i don't even need to finish the story do i <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and so we get to the club and i'm all excited and i've got this this set which again i been mean, done a thousand times it wasn't like i was testing something different anyway I go into the dressing room, it's full of, as the comedy store always is, it's like back-to-back killers, like, you know, it's yeah. like, uh, you know, because they don't do headliners and so forth in England. It's just, it's basically four headliners. So it was uh, Sean Collins, uh, his mate Mike Gunn, I think Phil Nickel was there. It's just, so it's just four of the, uh, the biggest comedians in, in the UK that I've watched a million times. I'm in the dressing room. Long story short, they bring me out on stage. Um, the MC... Uh, who his name is Mickey Harton he uh, gave me a lovely intro brought me out i don't know what went wrong right but no. i put it down to um, my my excitement and nerves and inexperience was was such that I came out trying to mask my nerves with enthusiasm, which as we know, audiences can smell that inexperience <laughs> and that like shit on a toothbrush and oh, they yeah. fuck, and they smelled it. And and then I also got thrown slightly because I, as I often do, what was watching the show carefully, had seen some women in the front row that had been spoken to, had some funny things that I knew I could come out and say to them uh, that would then lead into my first joke. Anyway, I come out, they're not there so I'm thrown by that um and I'm really over the top like trying to and it's it just it's they're not no one loves anything it's just going uh, appallingly um about 7 minutes in uh, someone shouts you unfunny cunt and oh, God. And and then oh no. the rest of the rooms join in. And, oh. it's, and it's like they are ch- chanting, like 400 people chanting, un-bunny-. and of course, you never go over and you never go under. But I'm seven minutes and I'm up there thinking uh, this. Uh, I think the club would agree I should get off. So I walk off the stage, and in the dressing room, all the comics who had been so nice to me beforehand are literally—they won't make eye contact with me, and they're actually edging away from me, like my unfunniness is contagious, right. like as if I've got the COVID—the uh, the COVID of unfunniness—the unfunny gene might rub off on them, and they just and, and 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 there's also a kind of um, an anger that they're emitting, which is kind of like you know, how dare you think you can do what we do, right? Uh, right. And, and and how dare you come into this sacred haven of comedy and and also ruin that audience's night. How dare, like there was that kind of rage. And so I sheepishly walked through uh, the, the, the dressing room and into the audience and my, my, my wife was sat on the end of the, the row having witnessed this, obviously thinking, what the fuck have you been doing for the last six months? Like, because th- th- you know what it's like also as a, as well for non-comedians or comedians, you know what it's like when you see someone bomb. You cannot imagine how they could ever do well. And similarly, right. when you see someone do well, you can't imagine them ever bombing. Like Absolutely. I've had this, you know, experience where where people have seen me and then come to see me another night basically with a, for the most part a, the, the same or similar act and they've seen me do well like rip the roof off one night and then they bring people and then I bomb and they're like what what, what happened like what happened and I'm like I, I don't know right. um, but and it's often hard to put your finger on what that that thing is but it's hard anyway so she's obviously thinking that is just terrible and of course that act had gone perfectly well the night before somewhere else right anyway I go up to her and I say we should go we should get out like f- <laughs> 400 people in this room hate me and and she goes yeah we we should but can, can we leave separately like do, can you go out first like she didn't want to be seen with me like that, wow
0: and she's and that, your wife right <laughs> my <laughs> and this
1: wife and she did what? not want to be seen leaving with the loser that had ruined everyone's night so that was so smart of, that was one of the, and and i guess to the point about why gigs go bad another uh experience and I will, I will try and keep it much briefer but another experience i had was a club chain in england called the glee club which is pretty much the the best club chain there were other club chains comedy store is the most famous one jonglers was known as kind of the most bare pit kind of Hindu audience you know having fights uh but the glee club chain was kind of known as the nicest chain in the they 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 loved comedians they they wouldn't allow hen parties to come in there was a maximum number of bookings they would you know literally be telling audience members to be quiet um and most importantly, what's a hen party oh sorry uh, like a, a a stagette party is that what it's called like a, a oh a, a bachelorette th- like a bachelorette, bachelorette. exactly sorry yeah oh yeah yeah Yeah. okay yeah so so they wouldn't encourage those because they know that they would ruin uh gigs so they were so they were you know um, and to the extent that they even had like phil nickel uh help design the club it was like where should the bar be how high should the stage be where like it's so it, it it was the comedians club the glee chain and and i got booked for my first ever weekend there like paid weekend this was a few years later um long story short I turn up on a on the on the the the, the first night the Friday night I'm nervous I'm anxious I'm, I'm tired I've spent a whole week working in an office um I've rushed ran out of work like like basically pretended I was going to the toilet and then grabbed my bag and <laughs> left the office so I could get the train to the Midlands I've arrived at this club exhausted tired nervous my first paid weekend long story short I go out and have just this killer electric set like just everything was perfect um I actually found a diary entry recently that I wrote the next day from the holiday inn in Birmingham where uh, and I was like this was the the, the day after this and I've basically written saying this is the first time I've ever thought that I could ever see myself playing like an arena the first time I've ever felt like a comedian that I could actually do this walked around on a high all day the Saturday night turn up at the club packed uh packed again S- same room same lineup same intro same everything walked out died on my ass like absolute like total fucking death um and and what was the difference that every joke was the same and i think partly what it was was as we know i mean the intricacies of those first few seconds on stage um I think possibly on the Friday night I walked out with the right mix of, of, of vulnerability and and um and and you know nerves but but knowing what I was doing. I don't know what it was, but there was something about my demeanour that subconsciously when I pulled the mic out of the stand the whole room went. Oh, we like the look of this guy. We, you know, we're, the, the subconsciously, obviously not consciously, they think, you know, we're going to see what this guy has to say. But right. I think on the Saturday, I must have walked out with an air of arrogance that, that again, subconsciously, they all thought, fuck this guy, yeah. you know. And um, and and it, and it's just that interesting thing. And sorry, um, one part of the story that I missed actually for the for the comedy store, um, point was that as I walked out of the room with uh, separately from my wife that night. Uh, sean collins was brought onto the stage so the mc uh came comes back on and rightly uh tears strips off me because again he told the audience you're going to love this next comedian and they didn't so they had he he needs them to trust him again so right. he has to tear strips off me so as i'm walking out separately from my wife he is laying into me and he introduced sean collins now sean collins walks out on stage and he's always very kind of slow and deliberate and precise when he walks out and doesn't rush anything but i think on this particular occasion almost to kind of highlight the gulf of difference between him and this loser me who had just ran out and kind of tried to win them over with you know um false enthusiasm he came out and he 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 pulled the stool over he sat down he sipped his beer he looked at the crowd and he just owned it and and i and it was just fascinating to me to see that difference between you know me thinking that running out going hey woo, hey woo, hey like a like a game show host <laughs> um uh, the, the the audience saw that inexperience and hated it whereas he just owned the room and it was interesting basically tonight a year ago at 3 a.m in a hotel bar after a dozen whiskeys, telling sean this story that it's stuck with me for like a decade that that that, that had happened that night
0: <laughs> wow that that is one of the best heckling stories I've heard, <laughs> where even your wife is like, I can't be seen with you. Yeah, right. This episode of Lease and Learned is sponsored by the Big Fish Steak and Lounge in Sarnia, Ontario. One of my personal favorite restaurants in in the world I was gonna say in the country but no in the world they have some of the greatest food I have ever had every single time I eat there I think to myself it will never get better than what I have just eaten and the next time I go back they top it once again it's that good if you live in the Sarnia area make sure you book your reservation for lunch or dinner or hell book your reservation for both right now do it tonight what are you gonna cook for dinner tonight probably something awful don't do that head on over to the big fish steak and lounge if you don't live in sarnia i suggest you make a trip down just for the food or if you're going to be in the area stop in and have one of the greatest meals you will ever have this episode is also sponsored by the car lot etc in sudbury ontario where they make buying your next vehicle very very easy let's say you go online you find a vehicle that you want to test drive but you can't quite make it in, no problem at all. They will bring the vehicle to you so you can take that test drive right from your own home. They do have the largest used truck inventory in the North. They also have the best selection of cars, SUVs, and vans. If you're like me and your credit is, let's say, not great, that's no problem, they do have options for everyone. You can also trade in your vehicle. They offer the best trade in value in the north. So head on over to the website, thecardlot.ca and book a test drive right now. This episode of Lease and Learned is sponsored by Cook'Em Secret and G's carpet cleaning and services for all your cleaning needs contact G's carpet cleaning and services and for your personal well-being contact Kukum Secret Sonotherapy with Drumming at G2 Cleaning Service Com. I got a chance to actually go up to Timmins and uh, take part in the Sonotherapy and the drumming. It was extremely relaxing. I recommend it highly. Head on over to g2cleaningservice.com and book your time today and make sure you get some cleaning done while you're there. When you moved to Canada, how long between uh, coming here and starting to live here before and then selling out the the arena? How how long was that for you?
1: Um, weirdly, weirdly, it sounds absolutely insane now to say with two years, um, wow. and and wow. so it was. It, it was weird. Like so, I moved here in February of twenty fourteen kind of hit the ground running in terms of went out and was doing shows as I mentioned everywhere I possibly could. And yeah. mentioned to someone that my dream was to play the Imperial Theatre in St. John, which is an 800 seater. it's like a you know a beautiful uh, historic theater. and that's where the first special is is from, right? Well so they, so the, there is it, it is on YouTube, it's called Londoner to, to Maritimer. yeah oh, actually in fact that was, a, that was so so I actually did it first time in 2014, and that was weird because I so I basically put a 800 seater on sale. Or, or I said to someone I want to do it sometime and they said, do it now. And I'm like, that's, that's ludicrous. They're like, J- just do it now. So I, did, so that was the October of the year I moved there. So I moved in February. Wow. And I booked the, and I basically, again, did the fringe approach of, and that was a, a, a fairly hard push in that it was me going around, postering, emailing people, literally writing to any email I could get saying, hello, I don't know if you've heard of me, but i just moved here. And I'm a comedian here. You know, I'm doing this show. And, and, and and my plan was to do the show I'd been touring the UK with before I left but then of course within that six months (laughs) ended up with a whole new 90 minutes about here so did that in that year then booked that same theater again for the subsequent for the exact same date the following year so then did it in October 2018 sold it out again and then around that time, a film production company within St. John called Hemmings House had got, in, had got in touch saying that basically you know, CBC have uh, these, this money for documentaries, for making documentaries about, and they have to do regional ones. Anyway, someone from CBC had got in touch with them and said, is, is there anything happening in St. John that we could do a documentary about? And they said, well, this comedian's moved here, really likes it, how about we do uh, a, a documentary about the revitalization of St. John through his eyes? and it was supposed to be me interviewing people and so forth and and it was that but we sat down and said let's have a hook we need a hook for this doc- for this documentary like otherwise it's just there's no point to it so someone in their office suggested why don't you try and sell out harbor station which is the five thousand Seater arena that traditionally seinfeld and jeff dunham would play and i'd already kind of had it in my head like that was something that i was going to attempt at some point point. and i kind of thought well what perfect timing to do this because we can really mobilize the city. So that's the thing with this whole, you know, and of course, I mean, I've been always been happy to, you know, laugh about and joke about the whole uh, selling out the arena thing. But I mean, obviously there's there's so many stipulations to it. It wasn't like I sold it. I didn't sell it out like Seinfeld sells it out. You know, there was obviously a lot of, there was obviously lots of comp tickets, lots of tickets donated to charities that they were then able to sell. Um, uh, I did sponsorship deals with, um, With, uh, for example, Lexus of St. John, I was able to, you know, they would sponsor it for for a large amount. So I I had this kind of capital up front and then they would get a, a a huge proportion of tickets to give away when people bought cars. It was all these kind of different ways of doing it. But the thing I knew was by having this CBC documentary, it meant that we were able to go out to the city and say, the rest of Canada is going to see this film about this lunatic coming to this small place and trying to pull off this thing. And the city got behind it like you wouldn't believe because of course they were aware that, how shit would it look if this documentary went out and it was like, mad Englishman moves to St. John, tries to do a thing and it completely fails and no (laughs) one comes. And the message is don't go to St. John, you won't be, so. uh, And his uh, wife left separately from the (laughs) arena. His wife was the only person to come, but even then, she wasn't willing to be seen with him. <laughs> and I, so it, it really was that small. And this is one of the things that I still can't get over: is the support of of of, the, of of this city and the the kind of you know just the gratitude that people had for someone coming in. And I see it. I see the the city, and I see this in small cities across Canada all the time. But the way in which someone comes and they get behind uh, people. And it's such a different way of thinking to like in England where, and again, I mean, this is a Canadian thing full stop, but like how, you know, when in England politicians get votes by arguing against immigration and saying, we're gonna throw out every immigrant. And it's that kind of Donald Trump, you know, approach of, of hatred of immigrants. and the same week that that the british prime minister was was getting was trying to run for you know, re-election or whatever by saying we're going to throw out all the immigrants meanwhile you know justin trudeau's here embracing he's getting votes by embracing syrian refugees coming here like it's just the polar opposite so it's that kind of mindset here of like being happy when people come here um that was today th- so 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 that first uh time selling out the mean was that and then basically just by I thought well I can't I don't want this to be a one-off so I then booked it for so I only had six or five months or so to do it that first time but like I said I had the whole city on side to do it I then booked it for two years again I'm superstitious about dates so I then booked it two years to the day afterwards and then basically had over a year to to push and sell and and sell those tickets to to fill it a second time and who knows when that'll ever be allowed to ever again to Yeah. With social distancing, you're probably only allowed to have a hundred people in a five thousand seater arena now.
0: Yeah. Wow. And so how many tickets did you guys end up um or I guess not necessarily sold because you said there were a few comps and stuff, but yeah. how many people were actually in that arena the first time and then how many the second time?
1: It was it was close. So it was about 4,800 the first time and then closer to 5,000 the second time. Wow. So, yeah, and then... Um, so it's one of those things. I mean, just trying to get that number of people in a city with a population of 100,000 in a room anyway is hard, yeah. let alone when... Um, yeah, but it was. I mean, yeah. I mean, and both those experiences will definitely go down as. I mean, I kind of said this in the CBC documentary. Like a day won't go by without me thinking about that, and and it's true. Like in actual fact, and I often use like looking at when I'm when I'm on the road, and when I'm you know you, you know what it's like when you when you're getting ready to. So you, we don't always feel gig ready, and quite often, especially when you've had a bad show the the night before, and you're trying to get into the mindset of. Of of the stage version of you, where you can actually walk out with that confidence. Quite, quite often, I'll just sit and watch. Like before, I'm gonna go out if I'm feeling like I'm I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm a terrible comedian. This is I'm they, th- I'm gonna get found out tonight. This is gonna be. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll kind of just, just quickly go on YouTube and just quickly watch like a five thousand person standing ovation, and go okay. I, I, and and that that gives me the so 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 the whole experience gives me um it boosts me when i need it now
0: when and when you were um getting set to do the first arena show mm. you must have done tons of shows obviously leading up but nothing yeah. probably of that size right it wasn't like you were doing arenas all over to prepare for that size
1: good good point yeah and i yeah i mean i really i think the night before actually i did 3 gigs and one of them annoyingly i it, i was hosting it was booked like a year before i was basically hosting a big cable systems uh awards gala but needed obviously to to do so i was like Look, can i do some stand-up and also can you extend the salad portion of the evening when they have their starter so i can run to yuck yucks and do a set in between because i've got this g-? so i did actually run around doing but yes yeah to your point i mean i'd never played anything over a thousand seater before and and there was a quote. I it was lucky enough to interview Jerry Seinfeld once, and I asked him because he was coming to England at this point to play the O2 Arena, which is a twenty thousand seater arena. And I remember asking him, like, if he how he plays it differently in those rooms, and he kind of said that the important thing is is to not do that. And he quoted a time that him and Stephen Wright in the eighties had played an eighty thousand seater stadium, wow. and he said, uh, with stand up, it's like he he used this line, which is brilliant. He said. Um, He said that basically you stand up it's it's kind of like swimming it doesn't matter how deep the water is all you can do is swim and um and uh, which is is interesting but the thing that i found and it was interesting so nikki payne opened for me that first time so she came off and i was like what's it like 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 what and she said what's weird is you think you're not gonna be able to see anything but she said i can see every i can see everyone like so that was good to know because i was kind of expecting a theater style situation where you walk up and you can't really see she was like I can see everyone at the back balconies I can see everything but I think one of the things I learned the first time so that was the thing so I had it in my head I just need to go out and do the act the same as I would anywhere else it would be a mistake to try and play it up the, the 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 trick that i learned the first time that i then really utilized the second time was that if anything i cuz i'm i am quite big when i'm on the stage in terms of you know um i mean not in the same way i was that night at the comedy store when i was trying to whoa <laughs> um but but i am but in smaller rooms i can be quite manic and what i tried to do the second time was actually dial it down so it became a lot more conspiratorial and I mean, this is a technique also that I've kind of you know, stolen, copied from a, a comedian I love in England called Frank Skinner, who in the 90s was just my, and still is basically my favourite uh, my favourite stand-up comedian. And he would—he was a big TV name, but he would do these tours. And these shows were absolutely filthy. And he was like the first comedian I ever saw doing routines about like discovering that masturbating with a finger up his ass felt nice and how he had to stop because he was worried he was going to have a heart attack and his mum would find him and it'd be like, how are we going to get the finger out? And, and he would do these, but he would do it in a way that never seemed dirty. Like he wasn't a blue comedian. And the reason was he would kind of do it in this slightly like, you know, it's just us. You know it's just us in a it felt like it felt like you were sitting with alan doyle at a pub table telling a story as opposed to it being a, so that was a, a thing i adopted with the with the biggest with the with, with the second show was and and the, the the material in that second one was a lot filthier and actually now i'm i still feel quite surprised that i did as much dirty stuff as i did when there's five thousand people there um because I don't know if I would necessarily do that again, but what I basically did was, was make it feel a lot more like, look, it's just us that I'm going to, I'm going to share this, this with, just with you. It was, it was a bit of that. That was, so it was in smaller rooms. I I take it up and then in bigger rooms, I bring it down a bit.
0: Interesting. Mm-hmm. And did you find that your, <clears throat> was anything different? Did you find your pacing had to be different or anything like that because of the, the laughs sort of getting all the way to the back or was it pretty much the same?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was definitely something was learning. And I, again, this is something which I'd, as a kind of a student of comedy, like it's something I'd read and uh, it was Mickey Flanagan, who's a comedian in England, who who is absolutely uh, amazing, who is one of those few comedians who, Was a club comic for years before coming huge. Basically, the only comedian in England who's ever been successful, who other comedians are happy for. (laughs) He's like like the only one that every comedian doesn't resent for his. Like he he did twenty five years on the on the on the in the pubs and the clubs at the store, and then like in his fifties became an arena. Uh, you know comedian doing 20 but yeah basically more nights at the O2 arena than Madonna and wow. and no one resents this. it says but I heard him do an interview talking about how when he first started playing bigger rooms it's trying to find something to do during the laugh because like like because what do you do like p- pacing or and there's only so many sips of water that you can take so so, so that was something but 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 in terms of the I mean, credit to the 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 tech team that I had SSI Audio in in Moncton who did the the tech that night. The, the sound was so good in there that there wasn't really the the delay or anything, and that was one of the things that I I when I booked the arena, having been to comedy shows in big rooms where the sound wasn't great. I basically went to them, and again there were certain things I paid for in mean, yeah, the big LED screen and. I mean i mean the tech alone for a gig like that costs about 20 grand and obviously wow. uh you know with all of the risk and all of the risk was 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 solely mine um you know, it wasn't like cbc were taking on the the, the risk because of the documentary it was all you know it was all, all, all the film company it was all completely you know my risk the um when i was negotiating with the tech company obviously I was kind of not nickel and diming, but you know, sense of being negotiating on different factors, but the sound was the one thing I basically said, what is the maximum I can pay? Like, what is the amount that I can pay that if one person says to me that they couldn't hear it very well, that I can basically come and steal your children? Like, 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 what's the, what's the like, what's the, like, I want the guaranteed, I, what, what I basically don't want is a situation where after the gig someone tells me the sound was shit and they go well you did you 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 knocked us down on the on the pricing whatever um you know and i mean as we know i mean it's the number one thing with stand up you just can't scrimp on the sound if they can't hear you you're fucked
0: yeah absolutely i have a i have a special that uh is exactly that it was a not an arena but it's a big you know big venue and yeah. the the night was great and live it was great it sounded great but what was captured was not uh you know was not what it was live so right. that's very smart of you to it's, to do that
1: well it's just yeah, it's one of those things it's one of those things we we all learn from you know we, we, it only has to go wrong once and then we know right
0: yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah. um and the other thing i find interesting is when you filmed it was it just one show? I mean, you you only had one chance to get it right, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, just one. Yeah, so both time. so the first time obviously it was being filmed for the CBC doc. So the clips of it were in that. And then afterwards I then paid the production company to edit me a special from it. And then the second time round, yeah, I basically bankrolled it myself. And yes, it was one show, so there was no, yeah. Which is amazing
0: because normally for most comedy specials, you would film either maybe minimum of two, but sometimes you do like a a string of eight shows and then piece together sort of the best uh, clips. So that's really risky to do that, that (laughs) big for just one night and for it to be a success is incredible.
1: Well, thank you. I don't know, risky or stupid, one of the two. But... <laughs> <laughs> it's a fine line in comedy. We're always we're always
0: right on that line of risk and stupidity.
1: That's exactly right. exactly. It's oh crazy. man.
0: well I, uh, I'm, I'm gonna let you go here. I, I know you got to, you gotta go, but uh, before before you do, I first of all want to thank you again for this. I, I no. really,
1: really appreciate it. Thank you so much. No, honestly, this has been it has been such an honour to be on this. And it, again, it's it's great to finally connect with you, having heard so many wonderful things about you over the years. And as I say, I'm a big fan. So this is uh, this is great. A, a friendship born out of a uh, a podcast moment is a beautiful thing. <laughs>
0: huge, huge thank you to James Mullinger for being here today. Make sure you follow him on all social media. Check out his YouTube channel. Check out his comedy specials as well. Thank you guys for watching, for listening. We really appreciate it. And I hope to see you again next week.